Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. What I would love to see from the climate movement, especially the groups that have celebrated this legislation, which, hey, great investments. We wanted to see this. We fought for it for a long time. I understand why folks are celebrating. It's really important for them to now come and go to bat for these communities and fight every single lease sale and start focusing a little bit less on the demand side. Not that we don't need more investment. We need more money on the demand side for clean energy, but also come over and fight extraction and fight on the supply side because demand side investment is really just how we get to ending the supply side. It's an indirect thing. I mean, the climate doesn't care about how many electric vehicles we put on the road. It cares about how many refineries are shut down and how many how many pipelines are stopped. You know, it's like about how much less carbon we can burn. All right, Molly, welcome to the Keep Cool show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. So at Keep Cool, we cover climate solutions. Um, and when I say that, often the first thing that comes to mind to other folks is stuff like technology or even legislation and public policy. But something that I haven't covered a ton and am excited to dig into today with you is stuff like activism and kind of community level organization. So why don't you get folks up to speed on some of the work that you're doing and paint a picture of what that can look like? Great. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people hear activism and think protests or marches, which is definitely a key part of it. But climate organizing and activism can take a lot of different forms. So for me, it includes lobbying and engaging directly with elected officials. It means talking to community members, doing trainings, going door to door to talk about the issues. And digital organizing is extremely widespread now, partly out of necessity from the pandemic, but also because it's an easy way to meet people where they are and get people to take action online, whether through petitions, call-in tools, social media, or more. But that said, direct action is consistently one of the best tactics in organizing. And by this, I'm talking about forms of public protests or demonstrations. So this is the piece that's really about protests and rallies and marches. Can also be sit-ins, boycotts, blockades. Direct action takes a lot of different forms, but it's most effective when it makes the message crystal clear. And those who are engaging in it are in some ways enacting the thing they wish would happen. So blockading an oil train or shutting down a refinery for a day. And it challenges people in power, our policymakers, our corporate leaders, et cetera, by showing them that people also have power, especially when a bunch of us get together. And we ultimately have a choice every day whether we're going to cooperate with an unjust system and an extractive system. And when leaders see us not cooperating and disrupting the status quo a little, maybe causing some financial disruptions as well, it's a reminder that people are powerful and we have to be listened to. Yeah, that um, that message about, you know, how do you communicate and make a message crystal clear, that definitely resonates with me as someone who, you know, spends a lot of time writing and, and trying to communicate through different forms of media. So it's cool to look at the different forms in which people can communicate those messages and make them stick. And before we dig deeper on, you know, some of the actual day-to-day work 
that you're doing. I'd love to hear just kind of like how you got into the field and what got you passionate about climate and, and working on these types of challenges to begin with. Yeah, I appreciate that question. For me, ever since I was a kid, I've, I've had a really deep love of nature and, and wildlife and spent a lot of time playing in the woods behind my house where I grew up in, in Western Pennsylvania. And I remember seeing those woods with a for sale sign one day when I came home and a few weeks later they were being demolished and cut down to make room for developments and uh, you know a few businesses. And I just remember like feeling a profound sense of loss and feeling like I wish there had been something I could have done to stop that. And I think it comes back to just this core belief I have that nature is, is intrinsically valuable. It has value in and of itself. It, it deserves to exist. Certainly wildlife and animal species have that right as well. And they often can't, they can't advocate for themselves. So I felt really drawn to doing that work, doing that advocacy. And it was just a constant theme in my life. I think there were a few times where I tried to move away from it, explore other interests, and it just always kind of dragged me back. I kind of describe it more as a compulsion <laughs> than a passion. I just feel like I have to do it. So I made it, I made it my career and studied environmental policy as an undergrad and a grad student. I started in clean energy research. I worked for Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory uh, studying clean energy technology adoption and how to increase the adoption of energy efficient technologies across the federal sector. And I started to feel that a lot of the technological solutions were there and we even had some of the policy solutions in place, but people weren't enacting them or prioritizing them. They just weren't changing their behavior. They weren't adopting the technology that was cost-effective and good for the planet. And that to me was just an embodiment of the bigger problem we were facing in society, which is that the climate change was not a priority issue and we were lacking political will. Uh, so I live in the Bay Area and I started organizing around that time with the Sunrise Movement, the Bay Area chapter, which really opened my eyes to the ways that the fossil fuel industry in, is holding our political system captive and has a lot of influence. So the status quo is to keep using fossil fuels as long as possible, despite the harm they cause. And our policymakers don't really have the incentive to stop listening to those interests because those are the interests with money and power, unless we have enough public opposition and active public support to transition to clean energy. So that's, to me, what organizing is meant to do. And that's why organizing has kind of taken over and become my dominant career and has led me to my current job working as a climate organizer with the Center for Biological Diversity and the People versus Fossil Fuels Coalition. Yeah, I think you identified kind of a really important historical gap here, especially in terms of, you know, markets don't do a good job of pricing in the value of nature, even in that conversation that folks often point to of, you know, clean energy technologies are now cost competitive with fossil fuels. Like that's purely a dollar term basis calculation. And that would have probably flipped a long time ago if the way that we think about, you know, all the negative externalities of burning fossil fuels and their impact on the environment had been factored in as well. So yeah, it's super important to, to identify. Yeah, the cost-benefit analysis 
argument can really help further more environmentally friendly, you know, projects if it takes into account the ecological values of nature and all the things that nature offers us. But oftentimes that cost benefit analysis is done in, in monetary terms. And there's just a limitation there, right? Because sure, you can calculate the yield of a, you know, big field of crops and you can predict what certain ecological damages will cost you in the long term. Right. But you can't really put a price on the joy you experience when you're in a grove of trees and you can't put a price on those kinds of intangible value that nature brings us. So even with a cost benefit analysis, I think there's, it falls short. What I would love to see is people kind of come to this understanding that nature is valuable for, for what it is without all the other pieces. Yeah. The, the intangibles are definitely huge. And, you know, when you try to do it as a purely quantitative exercise, you ignore so many other benefits, even just like biological diversity that people don't fully factor into their models. Uh, and even if modeling gets significantly better over the next 10 years, it's hard to imagine being able to price in all of the different benefits that come from nature. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing and the organizations that you work with. I'd love to hear what you've been working on and what the the key priorities this year have been. Yeah, absolutely. So I work predominantly through the center with the People versus Fossil Fuels Coalition, which is a coalition comprised of over 1,200 groups working together towards a common goal of, of ending the era of fossil fuels. Nice. Our main strategy is pushing President Biden to use existing executive authority to stop fossil fuel extraction and advance a just transition to renewables. So, you know, we spend a lot of time as activists critiquing what we're missing and what's lacking in the climate legislation and the investment that we need. But in reality, the U.S. actually has some incredible bedrock environmental regulations and existing law that gives the president power over a lot of fossil fuel extraction, certain, at least at the federal level, which is a significant portion of, of what we produce. So since day one of his presidency, Biden has had the executive authority to stop approvals for federal fossil fuel projects and accelerate a transition to renewable energy with, with or without new legislation from Congress. First, on the extraction side, Biden has existing powers to mandate a managed decline in oil and gas production on federal lands and waters, deny permits for new fossil fuel infrastructure from the Mountain Valley Pipeline to the Formosa Plastics Plant, and restrict gas exports under the Natural Gas Act. So there's many levers that he can press to phase out and start managing a decline of existing production. And second, on the demand side, by declaring a climate emergency under the National Emergencies Act, which many, many presidents have used, it's not actually that uncommon to use the NEA, Biden can unlock additional tools to ramp up renewables and steer us off fossil fuels. So that includes reinstating the crude oil export ban, barring U.S. financial institutions from funding fossil fuel projects abroad, and redirecting military spending to help build out more clean energy, which builds on what he's done already by using the Defense Production Act to scale up solar, heat pumps, etc. He can use, he can redirect more funding towards the electric, electric transportation and the other pieces that also need a build out. 
So yeah, hearing that, I'm curious for, you know, your scorecard two years into the Biden administration. Obviously, there's been some recent legislative wins and they've opened up a lot of spending for climate technologies. But where do you and, and the folks that you work with sit? Is it kind of like a, a B so far, a B minus, a C plus, maybe even A minus? What have you liked and what do you want to see change? Yeah, that's a great question. What I always like to say is we have a democratic president. As long as we have a democratic president, we can win. We can win these things and we have a political opportunity. It may be small. I'm not going to lie. I I knocked doors for Bernie. Biden was not my top pick because I knew that he had ties to kind of the status quo system and, and the way things work. But I do believe that he has done positive things on climate. He certainly signaled publicly that he wants to do that. He's made a promise. He's promised the American people that he would stop drilling on federal lands and waters. Unfortunately, he broke that promise because he, under his uh, administration, the Department of Interior held a massive offshore lease sale in the Gulf, about 80 million acres for new leasing that was then challenged and blocked by a federal court who said, you didn't take into account the climate impacts of this. And there's no way that new leasing passes environmental review when you incorporate climate impacts into that assessment. So it's been a series of, we get some little things and then we get some big losses. And I think the legislation just came through Congress is a perfect example of that. It's a huge historic investment in clean energy. It's the biggest investment we've had from our national government. They don't want to understate that. And yet the concessions that were forced into that piece of legislation by honestly one senator, but also other Senate leaders who facilitated that deal and allowed that to happen are a huge hindrance on the forward progress that we can make with that legislation and come with a really big cost for real communities, um, communities that are at the front lines of extraction from, uh, who are going to suffer from that new drilling and have their environment put at risk because of it. Yeah, I mean, especially in your case, having grown up in Western Pennsylvania, I'm sure you've seen a lot of, you know, negative stuff firsthand, whether it's all of the kind of the shale gas boom in the last few decades and all the pipelines that have been built in Appalachia. Um, I bet you have some firsthand experience with what that can look like. Yeah, my um, my grandparents had their property affected by cracked gas and their water source contaminated. They, they had a well on their property that they used for most of their water and there was a leak because fracking is unfortunately not super safe. Through that process, there's a lot of opportunity for toxins to leak. And then, of course, it gets into the watershed and groundwater and it can pollute an entire area. So it's not a natural gas is an incredible branding. I mean, obviously, it comes from nature, but it certainly has it has this implication that it's just like good for the environment, green source. And it's really not. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you naming that. And in Pennsylvania, absolutely. We, there have been a lot of groups that have opposed it and a lot of community members who, who don't want to see that extended. Not when we have solar and we can be putting solar panels on roofs and wind turbines on hills, like we, you know, we don't need it anymore. Yeah, that's a great lead in into, you know, this conversation that I'd love to have about some of the quote unquote concessions that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. What are the, some of the ones that stood out to you as potentially being the most harmful and, and where have you all been kind of paying attention and organizing around? 
Yeah, I, I mean, the, the one that I think was the biggest concession is mandating the leasing of 2 million onshore acres and 60 million offshore acres for new oil and gas drilling each year for a decade. Right. As a prerequisite to any solar and wind projects, they get approved on federal lands and waters. This is just such an insidious provision. It was one of Manchin's key requirements for voting on this bill because it inextricably links the build out of clean energy projects, which we definitely need, to the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure, which we desperately don't. So it's putting this huge weight and this anchor on any forward process that we're going to make through these demand side investments. Because the science and communities at the front lines of fossil fuel extraction have been exceptionally clear. We cannot have any new fossil fuel projects at this stage in the game. We actually need to be scaling back on what we're already producing. Multiple analyses have shown climate pollution from the world's existing fossil fuel developments, if fully used, will push us well past 1.5 degrees, which is the threshold where scientists predict crushing and irreversible climate damage. Avoiding that warming requires ending new investment in fossil fuel projects today and phasing out production as quickly as we can to keep as much as 40% of oil and gas from already developed fields in the ground. So we're really deeply concerned about the leasing provision, both from a climate perspective and based on the fact that new offshore and onshore drilling will continue to damage the ecosystems and communities that have already been hit the hardest by oil production and gas production in the Gulf region. So for years, communities on the Gulf Coast where these lease sales would occur, and in New Mexico and the Permian Basin region inland, have already been facing the impacts of extraction. And this is just going to increase that. And they've been fighting for no leasing for a really long time. And this legislation basically strips that away. So it's concerning. The last thing I'd mention is we're just not so convinced by the rosy assumptions that the modeling for emissions reductions is based on. There's folks saying that whatever emissions result from the new oil and gas drilling that's being mandated by the legislation would be made up by the demand side investments that it makes. I really hope that's true. It needs to be true because according to that same modeling, this bill is only getting us about a 10% increase in emissions reductions beyond what we were already going to get with business as usual. But it also banks on heavy investments in solutions that really, so-called solutions that really just aren't proven yet at scale and already raise a lot of environmental justice concerns like blue hydrogen, carbon capture, and biomass. So if those technologies can be built out in a good way, and if they are successful, we might get what the modeling is predicting, but that's a big if to me. And so just from a carbon accounting perspective, I'm not so sure. It's really hard to trust the modeling and it doesn't take into account the environmental health harms that don't have anything to do with carbon emissions. We don't want more extraction from fossil fuels, not only because of the climate crisis, but also because it's poisoning communities right now. And we have an alternative, multiple alternative sources that don't cause the same extent of those problems. And 
we should be transitioning to that without any additional expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I mean, I definitely agree with you that sometimes there's kind of a myopic focus on carbon emissions. And maybe some of that comes from that earlier conversation that we had about how hard it is to kind of model out the true value of nature. It's hard to really take all of that into account. And I think, as you noted, it's also super key to think about all of the assumptions that go into something like the headline figure that the U.S. is going to reduce its emissions 40% from 2005 levels by 2030 by 2030. There's a massive amount of different assumptions that go into that. And the more that you dig into some of those, the more that you can see that like it's not a guarantee. And it sounds like you all have already done some of that digging. So in that same vein, kind of one argument that I've heard around the leasing from other folks as to like why they're not that concerned about it is that, you know, even if the federal government auctions off a certain amount of acreage, that doesn't mean that oil and gas companies will necessarily bid on it. And even if they buy it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to develop projects on it per se. So I think this is one of those examples of something that you have to have assumptions around to model, but that can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, depending on who you ask and what their projections are. So, you know, how do you hear that pushback from some folks saying we don't need to be that concerned about the leasing? And Kind of what's your take on it and how do you see how much net new drilling do you think will happen based on some of this leasing activity? Yeah, that's true. What the legislation does is mandates leasing, which is the auctioning off of of parcels of land to oil and gas companies. That doesn't mean that those projects then get permitted and have to be built. What we often see, I guess the first thing I'll speak to is just the the interest from industry in the regions where this land is going to be auctioned. Some folks have said industry interest is waning. There was a sale recently in the Cook Inlet in Alaska, and the administration ended up canceling it because they said there was no industry interest, which isn't the right reason to cancel it, but that's that's there. The region, unfortunately, that's up for grabs here in the Gulf Coast is extremely oil rich and will probably have more industry interests than we typically see. And so that's one fear that industry will actually want this land and will buy it and will probably not all of the parcels that will be up for grabs, hopefully, but a significant portion of them. And any additional lease sale, even one acre is more than we can really afford based on the science. So that's one piece. The second piece around just the process after land is leased, we will definitely challenge every lease sale. Um, Speaking for the center, that's our strategy. We we do litigation and we challenge the permitting processes and push back because of the climate impacts and the health impacts and the list goes on and on. It's a difficult battle. Once you move downstream, it gets harder and harder because the momentum's up, the money's been been laid down, there's investment, there's energy. They really want to build those things. And unfortunately, given how tight-knit our government is with the industry, they tend to pull a little more weight in those fights. It's not saying it's impossible. And what I would love to see from the climate movement, especially the groups that have celebrated this legislation, which hey, great investments. We wanted to see this. We fought for it for a long time. I understand why folks are celebrating. It's really important for them to now come and go to bat for these communities and fight every single lease sale and start focusing a little bit less on the demand side. Not that we don't need more investment. We need more money 
on the demand side for clean energy, but also come over and fight extraction and fight on the supply side because demand side investment is really just how we get to ending the supply side. It's an indirect thing. I mean, the climate doesn't care about how many electric vehicles we put on the road. It cares about how many refineries are shut down and how many how many pipelines are stopped. You know, it's like about how much less carbon we can burn. And that really is with extraction. So yeah, we'll fight these projects and and hopefully they won't go through, but it is pretty crushing that that this was mandated, especially given just, you know, how much work has gone into keep it in the ground campaigns and trying to point this out. So I hope that we got our carrot. I hope people are ready to go on to the stick side. It's not a fun side, but it is necessary <laughs> and we need more people in that fight. Yeah, that's a great call to action. You know, that was definitely a question that I was going to ask at one point is, you know, how does someone like myself who perhaps focuses more on the technology and investment side of things work more closely with someone like you kind of on the activism and organizing side of things? How do we help advance the work that you all are doing all the time? And kind of two-part question that also leads me to to wonder and ask about, you know, what does like the day-to-day of your job look like when you want to go agitate for things that you want to see President Biden do, for example, like paint a picture for us of what that actually looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to speak to just my day-to-day, uh, I do a lot of work organizing within the coalition, within People versus Fossil Fuels. And a lot of that is taking the lead from frontline community organizers who are really have the best information and the best strategy for fighting these projects. Um, and then kind of uplifting their calls to action to a national level, to other organizations that have maybe more resources they can put into the problem. So I think that that's a really novel and important way that the People versus Fossil Fuels Coalition is is set up. I've often seen on the supply side of the climate fight, we have a tendency to be pretty siloed because we're we're trying to stop a project here, a project there. We call them site fights because it's a specific pipeline, a specific terminal, And the work that goes into stopping just one fossil fuel project or piece of infrastructure can represent years, decades of organizing. So it's really exhausting and intense work. And it's often falls to the people who live in the community where the project's going to happen, who will then breathe the air and have their drinking water threatened and their environment threatened and have no choice but to fight it. What we want to do with the coalition is empower those groups, provide more resources, direct attention, media attention to the fights and the work they're doing. And we want to bring all of these fights under the umbrella. So while we're trying to support fights on the ground, we're also lifting up the fact that they're all connected. People fighting the pipeline in Appalachia, that's going to get pumped all the way down to the Gulf Coast. And then that's going to get refined and shipped somewhere else. So it's all connected. And we really want to make that clear to people that we have to fight it on site, but but we also have to fight it all over the country. And then, that, of course, that's why we have the federal focus, which is Biden can, with a pen stroke, stop the permit, stop a pipeline like Mountain Valley Pipeline, stop Line 5, stop the Formosa's plastic plant. Like He can stop all of these things. And that's why we're trying to mobilize national pressure and get people to organize at the national level as well to demonstrate that people power too. 
Nice. Yeah, I like that. Kind of that integrates both a focus from the top down and from the bottom up, sort of the grassroots community level. Right. The key is the people who are closest to the problem have the best solutions and understand what's needed. So it's really grounding in that bottom up leadership rather than sitting in a national organization and saying, we should do this, we should do that. I mean, the key is to take the lead from organizers on the ground. So that's really what People versus Fossil Fuels is, is framed around, is that bottom-up organizing as much as we can. And yeah, this is a question I normally ask at the end of the show, but it feels appropriate to do it now. Is like, what's a call to action for people that are listening in to get excited about and kind of an example of how they can get their hands dirty and start doing some of this work? themselves too, if they want. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, first of all, there's direct action groups in every city. So that's always my pitch. It's a higher rung of the ladder if you haven't been organizing before. And I understand maybe folks don't want to jump into the deep end, but you don't have to plan a protest or a march. You just have to show up to one. And I would really encourage folks to show up in the streets as much as possible because we need the numbers and we need to be able to say, there were 10,000 people in the street for this and there were like 500 people here. So just showing up and taking that extra step, that was a big leap for me when I was first getting into organizing. And now I'm, I mean, I'm going to actions like every other week. So it really does get more and more normal the more you do it. I think that would, I would put that out as like the North star, the goal is for everyone to be organizing in their community and participating in direct action. But to start smaller, there's also just the type of advocacy I was talking about in terms of making your voice heard with your member of Congress. Right now, we have an action in the coalition that's framed around this side deal that's being discussed in Congress. Maybe we can chat about it a little bit later. But right. the basically, the premise of it is to gut some bedrock environmental protections like NEPA and the, and the Clean Water Act, which enshrine environmental review into every energy project process, which means that communities that are going to be impacted by those energy projects, which are usually fossil fuel projects, which this legislation is definitely prioritizing, get to speak up about the harms that can come from that project if it's built. And and it's just really about having a democratic process and the community being able to give input on something that's going to impact them. Yeah. So we're asking folks to tell their members of Congress. The legislation hasn't been introduced yet, but it's been promised by Schumer to Manchin as a condition for his vote on the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's definitely going to come up and we're expecting to see it in September. So now is really the time to call in and let your member of Congress know that we cannot have this side deal. We really need to block it from even being introduced. And if it's introduced, voting it down. So there's a call-in number that folks can use. It has some talking points if you call it. Uh, the number is 917-791-2257. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash block the deal, you can also write a letter and send it in. I would just say as a quick plug, you were asking before about like how someone from the clean tech industry can, can support these fights. For this piece of legislation, it's especially important to hear from people who work in renewables because there's some information going around that this draft legislation will help renewable energy projects get built faster. And that's actually not true. The legislation doesn't even mention solar, wind, 
anything like that. It prioritizes 25 energy projects that it will pressure, basically force the president to, to prioritize. And none of those could be renewable energy. First of all, they're probably going to be fossil fuels and they might be things like CCS or biomass plants and things like that. So that's the first thing. And second, renewable energy projects often don't have the same holdups through the environmental review process that fossil fuel projects do. Most projects kind of sail through on a pretty fast timeline. It's like two years for some renewable energy projects to be built. The reason fossil fuel projects take longer to clear that environmental review stage is because they're harming the environment a lot more than renewables do. Yeah. So any any attack on NEPA is really set up to benefit the fossil fuel industry and will actually make fossil fuels more competitive with renewable energy. They can get built faster and they have less hurdles. It actually gives them another unfair advantage in the market. So for renewable folks to say, we don't want to see this deal, we know that it's not actually going to benefit our projects. That's really, really key. And I would just invite clean tech folks in in this moment, we really need them to stand with the front lines and say, we want renewables, but we don't want it this way. And we don't want it in a way that will benefit fossil fuel projects. It just doesn't make sense. Great. Yeah, it's kind of energizing to hear how impactful the stuff that you're describing, even if it seems simple and small, can be. To zoom out a little bit, I'd also love to know, you know, what else is on your radar for the rest of the year? There's a Supreme Court case soon that comes to mind for me, Sackett versus the EPA that could affect the Clean Water Act. But what are other things beyond, you know, everyone's still talking about Inflation Reduction Act? What else are you all focused on? Yeah, so a big thing that came out of actually the negotiations around the Inflation Reduction Act is this side deal on permitting which I know I've covered a little bit, but if you wouldn't mind indulging me to go deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into it. Yeah, so basically as a condition for Manchin's vote, Senator Schumer and other Democratic leadership promised a second piece of follow-up legislation that they will try to pass in the fall, as early as September, that well, no one's seen the final text yet, but some draft text was, was leaked recently and had the initials API stamped on it, which is pretty likely a reference to the American Petroleum Institute. So the oil industry clearly has had its hands on this proposed legislation. And that's pretty clear from what it offers. We've seen in the draft text, which is about 80% of what's going to be in the bill, that the proposal is fast-tracking fossil fuel development at the expense of frontline communities by shortening timelines for consideration of permit applications under NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act and the Clean Water Act, um, CWA, by shortchanging opportunities for public comment. NEPA and CWA are two bedrock environmental laws. We use them in the center for environmental litigation a lot. A lot of environmental nonprofits do. It's really how we protect communities against damaging projects. And they are there to help ensure that federal agencies fully assess the effects of proposed projects on people and planet. The proposed legislation that's coming through Congress right now would significantly reduce the timeframes for that environmental review and maybe even prevent communities from giving input on projects. So it's basically rubber stamping a lot of 
fossil fuel infrastructure that probably wouldn't be built if it was given adequate environmental review. So it's really concerning. And I think a key piece to remember is that NEPA isn't the roadblock to infrastructure projects that a lot of industry scaremongers make it out to be. Like only one out of every 450 NEPA reviews are challenged in court. And that's certainly true in the case of, of renewables. Renewables tend to to pass NEPA review. It's not really a big roadblock to it, but it is a protection against fossil fuel development. So that's just a big concern. The last thing I'd say is it's also most likely going to green light um, and prioritize the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is a 303-mile frack gas pipeline cutting through the slopes and forests of West Virginia and Virginia. And that is extremely discouraging because folks who live in Appalachia have been fighting this project tooth and nail. And thanks to that activism and repeated court findings of its environmental harms, it was probably never going to be completed. They were going to be able to stop it. So if Manchin steps in and says, as a deal for my vote, as a condition for my vote, we're greenlighting this, it just completely circumvents a democratic process and a just process. And it's a sacrifice of communities in Appalachia who don't want this pipeline at all, including people in Manchin's own state. So it's incredibly frustrating altogether, not to mention the climate impacts because MVP would lead to annual emissions of an additional 26 coal plants, which or it's just the equivalent of 19 million passenger cars per year. So it's it's got a huge climate bomb risk as well. And we're fighting that piece to the nail. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing you talk about it, to me, it sounds like one of the more concerning things about this side deal is not just that it's permitting for new fossil fuel infrastructure, but that they actually handpicked the most problematic projects that had been opposed for good reason for a long time and are just kind of railroading them through. That's exactly right. And it, in a kind of twisted way, it's a testament to organizing because these projects were going to be stopped despite all the money and corporate interests behind them by grassroots organizers on the front lines, just everyday people who have full-time jobs and are doing other things, but dedicate time to trying to raise awareness about the issue and use the democratic processes that they have to give environmental review and to challenge it in court to prevent the project from happening. And like I said, it's this log. Doing that work takes years and years. And to have like one senator think that he can undo all of that is is infuriating and we need to tell members of congress that it's not acceptable so that that's a key piece but even though we're fighting this draft legislation and kind of playing defense on this terrible dirty deal coming from mansion and schumer we also don't want to lose the forward momentum we were gaining around bold executive climate action so a crazy piece of this story is that in the weeks leading up to the zombified Build Back Better Inflation Reduction Act that kind of came back out of nowhere, Biden was on the cusp of announcing some really bold executive actions. And some folks think that that might have been a reason that Manchin and Schumer put their heads together and got something done. So we were very close to potentially even a climate emergency declaration, which has been a top demand for people versus fossil fuels since the first day of Biden's presidency. And we don't want to lose 
that momentum, even though we have legislation through Congress and that's what's dominating the news cycle right now, we really are still trying to keep up the pressure and pointing out, yes, there's legislation. Yes, we have investments. It still falls way short of the 50% emissions reduction goal that Biden promised that we've set as the U.S. And there's all this other stuff that Biden can do without Congress and has been able to do this whole time that we really need to stop extraction because those are the two hand in hands. You put money into clean energy investments and you stop extracting fossil fuels and they have to go together. We've got one, now we have to get the other. So that's the next rung and that's the next stage in the fight. So we're playing defense, but we're also trying to push forward on offense and and win a climate emergency declaration plus stopping approvals for federal fossil fuel projects. That is all Biden's wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly not time to let our feet off the gas and, you know, kind of along that same line of, you know, thinking about how to stay and go on offense, let's close on an optimistic note. Like what are some of the things that you think have been your greatest success this year from the past few years of the work that you've been doing and and what are you excited about moving forward? I don't want to call it a win yet. I don't want to jinx it, but an exciting thing that I've seen here in my home state of California that is a direct result of long time movement organizing is the governor's climate package, specifically provision about setbacks. So every oil producing state in the US, except for California, has mandatory setbacks, which means an established distance between oil and gas wells and sites of extraction and sensitive community sites. So people's homes, libraries, churches, schools, et cetera, hospitals. California doesn't have that. And all across the state, we have people who are living right next to oil and gas wells, which in recent years, I mean, the the public health studies have just come flooding out about what these things do to people. So obviously that's been long fought by community members, predominantly communities of color, which is where most of these wells are concentrated on purpose, you know, to in poorer and more marginalized communities. This is where we put our oil and gas wells. And now that this is in the climate package from the governor, then the governor staff are like whipping votes. Like we think that this could pass the state legislature to mandate a setback, not only for new wells, which would be like the bare minimum, but for existing wells, which could actually impact oil production in the state, oil and gas production, because it could mandate the phase out and the end of operations for a few gas wells around almost 22% of oil production in California. So it's literally stopping extraction. And even three years ago, when I first moved to the Bay Area and first got involved in, in this fight and started learning what frontline organizers were doing around it, we thought it was just impossible. And it was so disheartening to be like, we can't even win setbacks. We can't even get the basic thing that like even Texas has in this state because we have some really strong fossil fuel lobbyists who, believe it or not, have a lot of hold over our state legislature, just like everywhere else. And yet here we are and it's on the table and we still have a lot of work to do to get it across the finish line, but we've never been this close. And that is a pure testament to people power and to to movements because no one else with like industry interests is, is really pushing for that. It's teachers associations, nursing associations, 
community members, youth activists who have been leading this charge. And it's heartening to see us get this close. And I really, really hope we get it over the finish line. So if you're in California, that's another call to action. You can call your member and let them know we want to see the setbacks piece pass. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that California is the only state where that legislation doesn't exist. But yeah, I just never thought about it. I mean, I do know someone, I know some people, I'm thinking of one friend in particular who lives in Newport Beach and she lives super close to, you know, small oil rig that's pumping oil, uh, probably like 500 meters from her house. And, you know, she does get a check in the mail every once in a while, but it's not that much money and certainly not enough to offset the all of the externalities of fossil fuels that we've talked about. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say as a one last sum up, I really appreciated being invited on to the show and, and having the chance to speak to you and the broader community and your audience because clean tech and the clean tech sector is it's just going to become more powerful and more influential as time goes on. It already has a lot of influence in Congress. People want to hear like what renewable energy folks are calling for, what solutions they think will work. You're still competing against fossil fuel, which is an established lobby and very powerful. So I think of clean tech as like the scrappy underdog in some ways. And I think what's really key is not recreating a similar system as we do enact this big transition. Like we're definitely going to transition to clean energy in our lifetimes. What I'm afraid of is that we will leave out the same people who were left out before and we'll leave out the folks who have suffered the most from our old energy system when they should really be the ones who benefit the most from the new one. Because we think about the communities that like your friend and the people who are literally at the forefront of extraction, they should have a stake in the clean energy system that we build. And I, I'm talking about financial benefit, it's certainly a seat at the table to decide what solutions they want for their community and a democratic process around distributed energy and all the other pieces we need. But then I'm saying also, we want them to make money from clean energy. They deserve to make, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs from communities of color who are like scaling up solar in their own community. And they're, they get passed over for investments because our investment system still prioritizes white people and, and white business. So there's those equity pieces that I just, you know, want to stress everyone who works in clean tech, like, you're going to have a lot of influence and ability to shape the next system we build. It's a huge moment. We get to be that transition generation. That means we have a lot of power about how we set it up so that it's going to be better for future generations. Yeah. I mean, for a simple example, just thinking about technologies, if you take electric vehicles, for instance, you know, I can't afford one, let alone if I had one where I live, it'd be really hard for me to figure out how to charge it all the time. And if I, you know, as someone with a significant amount of privilege can't figure it out, uh, then who else is being excluded from participating in that transition? Absolutely. That's the exact right questions to be asking. Um, So totally. All right. Well, Molly, it was great having you on. And I really appreciate everything that you and your colleagues do and work on. And I'm super excited to cover more of those stories and hopefully get involved myself in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. 
We'll see you soon. <laughs>